Well, good morning. What a great celebration we had last Sunday. I'm glad it wasn't this Sunday in the rain, but as we had our outdoor combined uh, Glenkirk and La Casa service um, last Sunday to kick off the summer, it was a great way to kick off the summer to worship together. We worshiped together in Spanish and English. Um, and also with some translation into Chinese, since three of our new covenant partners were native Chinese speakers. Um, we welcomed nine new members at Glenkirk, Darwin and Laura Paulson, Jeff and Teresa Okerson, David Loser, Shani Shu, Sunny Shu, Ruth Hu, and Caitlin Hawkins. Um, and then we also baptized uh, a couple of people. We baptized uh, Miriam Wallace Nunnally and Matias Garcia and Shani Shu, who became a, a member, and Mateo Mancayo. And uh, so it was a great, great weekend, and thanks be to God. You know, when my boys were young, um, we would go on a family camping trip every summer. Um, and we would do an annual camping trip because, you know, when you camp together, you build relationships, you create lifelong memories, um, you learn to appreciate the outdoors, and it's cheap to camp. So, um, And I remember at least one family camping trip when my sons were little where everything seemed to go wrong on the very first day. Uh, we were planning on camping for a week at a state park in Big Sur, and we drove all day to the campground, and we got there, and they had no record of our reservation, and the campground was full. And so we ended up driving around from place to place in the area until we finally found a campground that could take us. But we didn't have the tranquil campsite next to the, the serene Big Sur River like the one we reserved. Instead, this campsite was right next to the bathrooms and surrounded by RVs that all had their generators going. So by the time I started setting up our campsite, I was pretty grumpy. Um, then I discovered that one of my sons had forgotten his sleeping bag, um, that one of our tents was missing some of the tent poles, and my frustration turned to anger, and it started spilling over onto the kids. I know that you parents have no idea what I'm talking about. By the time I finally got our campsite set up, I was fuming. Now, in the end, that turned out to be a great trip. But that first day of that trip, I got tunnel vision. I lost sight of the whole reason we were going on a camping trip in the first place. It's easy to get tunnel vision in life, to get so focused on what's right in front of us that we forget why we're doing what we're doing and the whole purpose of what we're doing. And we can get tunnel vision in our spiritual lives too. We can focus so much on spiritual practices like prayer and Bible study, worship, and solitude that we forget that these practices are a means to a much greater goal. Or we can get so focused on church programs like Sunday school or choir, youth group, or missions that we forget that these ministry programs are simply a means to something much greater. It's easy to get tunnel vision. Two weeks ago, we started our summer series through 1 Peter that we're calling Forged in the Furnace. Peter pictures our lives as Christians as elect exiles. 
We're elect. God has chosen us. We belong to God and God's purposes. But we are also exiles who have been scattered in a world that we don't fully and completely belong to. We are elect exiles. First Peter looks back at Israel's ancient exile in Babylon as a pattern or a picture of what it means to live as followers of Jesus. Three times in First Peter, he calls us exiles or foreigners. And in chapter 5, Peter uses the word Babylon to picture what it's like to live in a place that we don't truly belong. Now, for ancient Israel, Babylon was the literal city of Babylon in modern-day Iraq. That's where Israel spent their exile. But for Peter and his original readers of his letter, Babylon was a symbol for the massive Roman Empire that spanned from Greece to Palestine. Throughout this series, I'm using the word Babylon to describe the whole world as it exists, alienated from God and ignorant of the ways of God. No matter where Christians live today, Glen, Glendora or Guadalajara, San Dimas or San Paulo, Laverne or Liverpool, we live as exiles in Babylon. And it's easy to get tunnel visioned when you live as an exile in Babylon. It's easy to miss the forest for the trees, to get so fixated on the things that are right in front of us that we forget where we're going and where we truly belong. And today we're going to see that growing up into love is one of the most important goals of the spiritual life. But sometimes we get tunnel vision and we lose sight of that goal. So I want to invite you, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of Im the imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And be seated. The primary command in this whole passage is in verse 22, love one another deeply from the heart. Everything else in this passage are a means to an end to that command, to love one another deeply. 
The word that Peter uses for love here is a Greek word that back then was mostly used to describe the kind of love that exists in a family. The Greek word is Philadelphia, which is where we get the the name of the city Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And back then, the Greek word Philadelphia was used to describe the mutual affection that people in a family share for people that they're related to either by blood or by marriage. But here, Peter is not talking about love for people we're related to. Peter is picturing Jesus' church as a family, with Christians related to each other as brothers and sisters because they share a common faith and they have a common father. As God's people, we are to love each other deeply like family. Now, Babylon has a very different approach to love than what Peter writes about here. In Babylon, no matter where your Babylon happens to be, your circle of love actually starts with your biological family. Your inner circle of love begins with the people you're related to, either by blood or by marriage. And then that circle expands to include your people. And your people probably includes your friends. It includes people who you might share the same race or nationality or ethnicity. Your people are people who see things the same way you see them. People who vote like you vote. Root for the same team that you root for. Go to the same college that that you graduated from, and so on. Your people are the people you share the most in common with, beginning with your biological family. And then the circle expands to your nation. No matter where your Babylon happens to be, whether literal Babylon that ancient Israel was in exile in, or the Roman Empire that the Christians Peter's writing to were in, or modern-day America for us today. This is how love tends to work in Babylon. Now, in Babylon's way to love, people have no obligation to love outside of their circle. Those who are not my people or not my family or not my friends or not my nation are all outside the circle of love. In Babylon, we tend to trust people outside of our circle, viewing them as threats, potential enemies, people to be kept at an arm's distance. We might tolerate them. We might even live next door to them. We might work side by side with them. But they're outside the circle of love. This is how love works in Babylon. But Jesus and the rest of the New Testament present a very different approach to love. For followers of Jesus, our circle of love actually starts with God's family, not with our biological family. God's family may include people that we're related to, either by blood or by marriage, but it may not. And God's family also includes a whole lot of people that we're not related to. The very starting point of love is a radical departure from Babylon. In fact, there's a story about Jesus in the Bible about this. While while Jesus was teaching some people in a house one day, um, his 
mother and some of his brothers arrived because they were a little afraid that, that uh, Jesus was going off the rails a little bit. And so the crowd informed Jesus that his mother and brothers were outside the house looking for him. And according to Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Then pointing to his disciples, Jesus said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father is my mother and sister and brother. Matthew 12, 48 through 50. Jesus redefined his own family based on God's will rather than bloodlines or marriage. Love begins with the family of God. This is the starting point of love for Christians. Then that love expands from God's family to include our families. Loving God's family does not let us off the hook of loving our own biological families. We're still called to love our parents and our, our siblings and our spouse if we're married and our children if we have them. Whether, whether they follow Jesus or not, we're called to love them. But then Jesus expands the circle to include our neighbors. And Jesus defined our neighbors much more broadly than we tend to. In fact, someone once asked Jesus, who is my neighbor anyway? And to answer that question, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan to show us that our neighbor is anyone we might encounter who has a need that we are in a position to meet. My neighbor may not live next door to me or look like me or speak the same language I speak or worship like I worship. But then Jesus expanded the circle even further to include our enemies. Jesus once said in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbors but hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies even those who wish us harm, are inside our circle of love. Can you see how Jesus' approach to love is very different than Babylon's approach to love? No wonder we need to grow up into love. And it all starts with God's family. God brings us into his family to give us a community to love to give us a community to love. Believing in Jesus and being born into the family of God is not an end in itself. When we baptize someone into the family as we did last Sunday, that's not the end of the story. It's the beginning of being in a community of loving and being loved. Now, this is not to suggest that love is always easy in God's family. It's not. God's family can be just as messed up as our biological families. In fact, there's a few documentaries right now out about how some churches and ministries have been places of pain and abuse, and I don't want to minimize that trauma. I carry some of my own scars from church trauma. But God's intent to bring us into the family of God is to give us community where we can love and be loved. Community where we become brothers and sisters to each other, not because of bloodlines or because of marriage, but because we share a common faith and a common father. Now, when First Peter was written in the late first century, Christians were a tiny percentage 
of the Roman population. According to Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, he teaches at Baylor University, he estimates that Christians made up just two-tenths of one percent of the Roman Empire when First Peter was written. Two-tenths of one percent. That's less than 800 people in a population of 60 million people. Peter knew that the early church would never survive if they couldn't love each other deeply. By the end of the second century, Stark says, uh, about a hundred years later, Christians had grown from two-tenths of one percent to about two percent of the Roman population. And by the end of the third century, Christians were ten percent of the Roman population. And Stark offers a variety of different reasons for this, but near the top of his list is because the early Christians learned to love each other deeply. Peter commands the early church to love because he knew that love was essential to its survival, and it's essential to our survival as well. God brings us into the family of God to give us a community to love. In verse 23, Peter returns to the idea of being born again. Back in verse 3 of chapter 1, we learned that we experience new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Now here in verse 23 of chapter 1, he says that this new birth happens through the Word of God. God's Word is pictured like a seed that's been planted in us that grows and produces fruit, the fruit of love. And in verses 24 and 25, Peter quotes the prophet Isaiah. And not surprisingly, these verses that he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 were originally addressed to exiles living in Babylon. As Israel lived in their own exile, they were overwhelmed by the splendor and sheer magnitude of Babylon's glory. Babylon was the dominant cultural and political and military force of its day. The hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so Isaiah reminds Israel that Babylon's glory will eventually fade and die like grass in a field or the roses in your yard. The Christians Peter wrote to, and the reason he quotes Isaiah 40, is they were living under the glory of the Roman Empire. They were scattered in this powerful, pagan, violent empire. But Rome's glory would eventually fade too, just like Babylon's glory would fade. Only the word of God would last forever. God's word would outlast the glory of every king and tyrant and emperor and nation and kingdom and culture. God gives us truth, the truth of God's word to teach us how to love. That's why God gives us his truth. When we're struggling because the glory of Babylon seems overwhelming around us, Peter reminds us, of the lasting and enduring truth of the Word of God. God gives us the Word to teach us how to love. See, God doesn't give us truth as an end in itself. No, don't get me wrong. I love the Bible. 
I spent four years of college, two and a half years of seminary, and three years of doctoral studies focused on studying the Bible. For, for more than 20 years, I taught the Bible to undergrads and seminary students, first at Biola University, then at Azusa Pacific University. I've dedicated my life to the Word, to reading it and studying it and, and teaching it and communicating it. But if the truth of the Word is not helping us learn to love better, we're doing it wrong. God gives us the word to teach us to love because the glory of Babylon will fade like the roses in my backyard. But God's word and its truth will endure forever. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 2, Peter urges us to rid ourselves of several vices. A, a vice is simply a bad habit or a destructive practice. And Peter lists five bad habits in chapter 2, verse 1. When you live by Babylon's circle of love, these are the bad habits you will develop. Malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. These bad habits, these vices, destroy loving relationships. The, the word translated malice here, it describes hateful hostility towards other people. You can have malice towards an individual. You can have malice towards a whole class or group of people. Racism is a form of malice. Sexism is a form of malice. Hateful hostility towards Jewish people or a particular political party or, or members of law enforcement or immigrants are all examples of malice. Malice is so common in our Babylon, we hardly notice it anymore. Without malice, Twitter would probably go out of business. Deceit refers to deception in our relationships. Hypocrisy refers to hidden agendas in our relationships. Envy is feeling bad when someone you don't like has something good happen in their lives. And slander is speaking negatively about other people. Peter tells us to get rid of these bad habits, to shed these vices like we're taking off a, an old, stained, worn-out coat that doesn't fit us any longer. God commands us to shed our vices, to free us to love, to get rid of these bad habits so that we can be free to love. See, we don't get rid of these bad habits just so we can sit back and look all virtuous. We get rid of them in order to love better. God empowers us by his spirit more and more to take off these bad habits like bad clothes so that we can be more and more free to love. Now, since Peter uses the image of childbirth in chapter 1, verse 3, you've been born again into a living hope. And again, in verse 23, born by the word of God, Peter continues to develop this image of childbirth in chapter 2 when he pictures us as nursing infants. Like nursing infants crave their mother's milk. As God's children, we are to crave pure spiritual milk. 
Babies crave milk instinctively, eagerly, and incessantly. Just ask any sleep-deprived nursing mother who had to get up at 3 a.m. for a feeding. Now, what is this pure spiritual milk Peter says we should crave? Well, I think we get a clue from verse 3 when he says, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Verse 3 is actually a quote from Psalm 34. The, the full verse says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Can you see the connection between craving milk like a baby craves its mother's milk and tasting of the Lord's goodness? Like nursing infants, we taste God's goodness in our relationship with God, and it makes us crave even more. So the pure spiritual milk, I don't think it's any one thing, but I think it's all that God offers to us to help us grow, to nourish us. The, the one word I think that encapsulates it is the word grace. God nourishes us with grace to cause us to grow in love cause us to grow in love. Growing into maturity, growing up into love, requires constant nourishment. If we're malnourished, our growth will stop. And let's be honest, not everything that tastes good is good for us. Candy bars taste good. I like the hundred grand bar, but it spikes my sugar. Chicken strips and French fries and burgers taste good, but for me, they clog my arteries and raise my cholesterol. Not everything that tastes good is good. God gives us good grace from God's good character in order to nourish us with good nourishment so that we learn to love. God's grace is pure spiritual milk. For us as infants who have been born into the family of God, God's grace contains all the nutrients we need to grow in love. We taste of that grace whenever we worship sincerely as we've been doing today. We taste of it when we celebrate the sacraments of baptism and communion as we did last Sunday. We taste of it when we read and study the Bible, when we spend time with God's people, when we engage in spiritual practices like prayer and solitude. But none of these things is an end in itself. These things are a means to be nourished so that we can love one another deeply. If we're not growing in love, it's probably because we're not seeking the right nourishment. Malnourishment leads to a love deficiency. It's easy to be like me in that campsite when my kids were little with tunnel vision. It's easy to lose the forest through the trees. Loving each other, it's not the only goal of the Christian life, but it's certainly near the very top of the list. After all, Jesus said the two greatest commandments were to love God and to love our neighbor. We see that word love every time we come into this sanctuary on a Sunday morning. Because part of our mission as a church is to grow into becoming people who love well. God brings us into his family to give us a community to love. God gives us truth to teach us to love. God commands us to get rid of our bad habits to free us to love. And God nourishes us with grace to grow us in love. In the Christian life, 
If we're not growing in love, we're not growing. So let's not get tunnel vision. Let's love one another deeply from the heart so that our circle of love keeps getting larger. So when people look at Glenn Kirk, they don't say, look at their amazing pastors or listen to their amazing music or look at their great ministries or their great buildings, but instead they say, look at how they love. Because in the end, that's what really matters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of Scripture. And thank you for the call to love. To love each other and to love those around us as you have loved us. And Father, thank you that when we taste of your goodness, of your character, of your grace, it causes us to hunger for even more. Like nursing infants crave their mother's milk. May we crave all that you have for us that we might continually grow into people who love well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.